This is VOA News reporting by remote. I'm Michael Brown. The U.N. Secretary General and Turkey's President are in Ukraine to meet with Ukraine's President to discuss the situation at a Russian-controlled power plant in southern Ukraine, among other issues. AP correspondent Karen Chamas reports. UN Chief Antonio Guterres and Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan are to meet with Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky in the western Ukrainian city of Lviv. Both Guterres and Erdogan played a part in helping to release 22 million tons of corn and other grain for export that was stuck in the country since the Russian invasion. The three leaders will also discuss the situation at the Russian-controlled Zaporizhia nuclear power plant in southern Ukraine. Moscow and Kiev have both accused each other of shelling the plant. I'm Karen Chamas. The 24-year-old man accused of attacking author Salman Rushdie last week was indicted by a grand jury Thursday in New York State. Hadi Mata pleaded not guilty to second-degree attempted murder and second-degree assault charges and was held without bail. The 75-year-old Rushdie was attacked Friday as he prepared to speak in a lecture hall outside the city of Buffalo. He was attacked in the neck and torso and rushed to a nearby hospital where he underwent several surgeries. His agent said that his liver was damaged, nerves were severed in one arm, and he might lose an eye, but is on the road to recovery. And renowned Somali author and poet Mohammed Ibrahim Warsane, better known by his pen name as Hadrawi, died Thursday in the Somaliland capital. According to family members, he was 79. For more news, please join us at our website, voanews.com, also on the VOA mobile app, via remote. This is VOA News. Algeria's Civil Protection Agency says wildfires raging in the country's east have killed at least 37 people and wounded 161 others. Most of the victims were reported in the region of El Tarf, near the northern Algerian-Tunisian border where 34 people were found dead. The North African nation's prime minister said Thursday the Algerian state would support the victims' families and pay for renovation work and compensation for the loss of livestock and beehives. A judge appears willing to unveil some of the Mar-a-Lago affidavit. We get more on the story from AP correspondent Lisa Dryer. A federal judge, U.S. Magistrate Judge Bruce Reinhardt, has ordered the Justice Department to put forward proposed redactions as he committed to making public at least part of the affidavit supporting the search warrant for former President Donald Trump's estate in Florida. The judge gave prosecutors a week to submit a copy of the affidavit with proposed redactions for the information it wants to keep secret. It comes a little more than a week after the FBI seized classified and top-secret information during a search at Trump's Mar-a-Lago state. A prosecutor said the investigation into whether Trump illegally stored classified records is still in its early stages. I'm Lisa Dwyer. The White House announced Thursday it will make an additional 1.8 million doses of the monkeypox vaccine available for distribution beginning next week. White House National Monkeypox Response Coordinator Bob Fenton said the additional doses will be available for U.S. jurisdictions to order starting Monday through the Department of Health and Human Services. Fenton said the additional doses are part of the National Monkeypox Response Team's plan to address the viral diseases outbreaks in the U.S. and mitigate its spread. He said 
HHS has been working on launching a pilot program that will provide up to 50,000 doses of the national stockpile from the national stockpile to be made available for events that will have high attendance of gay and bisexual men. While monkeypox is not classified as a sexually transmitted infection or STI, it has been found to be disproportionately affecting men who have sex with men. Fenton said the Biden administration has also significantly increased availability and convenience of monkeypox tests, expanding capacity from 6,000 tests per week to 80,000 tests per week. For more news, please join us at our website, voanews.com. I'm Michael Brown reporting by remote, VOA News. Africa. Welcome to Daybreak Africa from the Voice of America. I'm James Barty in Washington. Today is Friday, August 19th. And here are some of the stories we are covering. Kenya's electoral body faces a post-election crisis. wish to inform the country that uh, our returning officer for Mbakasi East constituency, Mr. Daniel Mushoka, has been reported missing. We'll preview Angola's upcoming parliamentary and eventual presidential elections next week. Free speech advocates decry a court ruling in Nigeria. The Ethiopian government denies TPLF allegations of attacks in the Tigray region. This narrative and this rhetoric that keeps coming from the other side is uh, no less than a mechanism to deflect from the desire not to engage in a peaceful manner. And WHO experts recommend COVID-19 booster shots for high-risk people. Those stories plus something O'Malley Sports are coming up on Daybreak Africa. Independent Electoral and Boundaries Commission, the IEBC, is facing a crisis, citing harassment of its members and staff. The commission, through its chairperson, Wafula Chabukati, has expressed concern following the murder of an IEBC official whose autopsy failed to show the exact cause of his death. At the same time, another of the commission's staff is fighting for his life after his leg was amputated after being shot on election day. Maureen Ojiambo reports from Nairobi. Kenya's electoral body are living in fear. This as the commission has opted to postpone the election that was slated for next week in some parts of the country where the vote did not take place on the 9th of August. The polls were postponed in those places following a mistake on ballot papers, among other issues. In a statement by Commission's chairperson of Chebukate said that and I quote, the commission is concerned that some of its critical staff who objectively and impartially performed their duties at the National Tallying Center are being intimidated and harassed through profiling and or arbitrary arrests. This has instilled fear within the staff who are now unable to report to the office for duty, end of quote. Last week, Chebukati announced the disappearance of Daniel Musioka, a returning officer who was based in one of the stations in the capital. He went missing while on duty. Musioka's body was later found dumped early this week at the Amboseli National Park, a few kilometers from Nairobi. I wish to inform the country that 
Our returning officer for Embakasi East constituency, Mr. Daniel Mshoka, has been reported missing while on duty at the East African, that is East African School of Aviation Telling Center. Yesterday, Thursday, five pathologists failed to ascertain the cause of Musioka's death. Led by government pathologist Dorothy Njeru, they said that they could not determine the precise cause of death, saying samples would be subjected for further forensic analysis in a government lab. At the same time, another IEBC official, Mohamed Kanyare, had his leg amputated after he was shot several times on the election day. Kanyare says he was shot by a police officer. Kanyare was a presiding officer in Eldas constituency in Wajir County. It is alleged he was asked to alter voting forms in favor of one of the candidates, but he declined. The light to be switched off and everybody to lie down. Since it was near the podium where the electoral officials and the officers were sitting, I took a few steps back and lay down. An officer came from nowhere, shot at me, and left me crying for help. Musioka and Kanyare joined the history books as officers who were killed and injured while performing their duty. During the announcement of the presidential results, the chairman Wafula Chibukate, commissioners Abdegulie, Boyamolu, and chief executive officer Marjan Marjan were physically attacked assaulted and injured by persons in the company of certain political leaders. Meanwhile, there are cracks at the commission as the chairman and his vice are reading from different pages. Juliana Cherera is the IEBC vice chairperson. That the aggregation of the percentages of the results scored by the four presidential candidates who were on the ballot as declared by Mr. Chebukati presented to us a mathematical absurdity that defied logic. Chebukati, however, denied Cherera's allegations saying she wanted him to call for a rerun instead of announcing President-elect William Ruto the winner. Reporting for viewers Daybreak Africa, I am Moreno Jambo in Nairobi, Kenya. Next week, millions of Angolans go to the polls for parliamentary elections that will also decide the country's new leader. The main presidential candidates are incumbent President Joao Lorenzo, the hand-picked successor of longtime ruler Jose Eduardo dos Santos, and Adalberto Costa Jr., the leader of the National Union for the Total Independence of Angola, or UNITA. Paul Natulia is a research associate with the Africa Center for Strategic Studies. He tells my colleague Carol Van Dam that Costa appears to hold a slight lead in the latest polls. He seems to be in the lead in most opinion polls. Seems to have made a lot of inroads in uh, some of the MPLA's traditional uh, strongholds. So it does seem on the face of it that this coming election might be Angola's most competitive election since 1992, when multi-party politics was introduced in the country. Tell us a little bit about the candidate with UNIDA. Yes, he represents the young, the younger emerging crop of politicians that has been uh, coming up in Angola over the past uh, decade. He's, he's a member of parliament, a very charismatic uh, member of parliament. He is seen as a reformer with very, very strong, uh, uh, very strong reform credentials. Uh, he has been able to establish himself as a candidate that that identifies very strongly with uh, with the need to make the Angolan state much more accountable, 
the need to uh, take into uh, into serious consideration the issues of uh, corruption, uh, high-level corruption, and very importantly, the youth. He has quite a following among among young people. Uh, I mean, he's young himself. For the first time since independence, the Angolans who did not experience the civil war between the MPLA and UNITA, which are very bitter rivals, will be voting in this in this election for the first time. So the, mem- the memories of the civil war, the memories of that historical tension between between UNITA and, and, and MPLA are very distant to this uh, group, to this constituency. So Adelberto represents that, uh, that energy. President Lorenko has been praised abroad for his whole anti-corruption drive shortly after he took office. But critics say that this corruption crackdown has really only been very selective. What do you say about that? Yes, well, indeed, President Lorenzo has projected himself right from the very beginning as a reformer, as somebody who uh, wanted to uproot the old MPLA power structure that has been in the country very, very, very deeply entrenched since independence. He has also sought to distance himself uh, from the excesses of the of, of the past, and also to distance himself from his boss, from his former boss. And uh, this this has been popular. It has been popular among Angolans, and it's also been very popular among the youth, as I mentioned. Uh, so he has tried to project himself as a reformer. However, there's a lot of criticism that that, that these efforts have largely been cosmetic and have largely been aimed at securing uh, some kind of uh, alternative political base uh, for Lorenzo. That was Paul Natulia, research associate with the Africa Center for Strategic Studies. He was speaking with my colleague Carol Van Dam. Tigrayan forces have warned of renewed conflict in northern Ethiopia, accusing federal forces of firing on their positions this week, despite a month-long ceasefire. The office of the Ethiopian Prime Minister dismissed the allegation and said it was aimed at deflecting efforts to engage in peace talks. Henry Wilkins reports from Addis Ababa. After rumours swirled that fighting had broken out between Tigrayan forces, TPLF and the national government, TPLF spokesman Fesahar Askahedom Tasema told VOA that bombings took place in several areas. The Addis Ababa government has started bombing uh, Tigray forces uh, in, in different fronts beginning yesterday. Uh, therefore, I don't see any uh, any any progress towards any peaceful resolution. In fact, it looks like we are back to zero. The TPLF made similar comments in a written statement that accused the government of declaring war on the people of Tigray and committing genocide. Asked to respond to TPLF claims of provocation by national forces, government spokesperson Belene Seyum denied the accusation at a press briefing. This narrative and this rhetoric that keeps coming from the other side is uh, no less than a mechanism to deflect from the desire not to engage in in a peaceful manner. Uh, but the humanitarian truce that had been enacted by the federal government is still in place. A spokesperson did not immediately respond to a request for further comment. If the claims of an attack are true, it could mark the end of the humanitarian ceasefire established in March between the two sides. The Ethiopian government had also been indicating peace talks with the TPLF. The Tigray People's Liberation Front may be imminent. The TPLF has said repeatedly that talks will not go ahead until a humanitarian blockade, which the United Nations says has likely left parts of Tigray in a state of famine, is lifted. 
William Davidson, an analyst for the International Crisis Group, a Belgian-based research organisation. He offered his assessment of the situation. This report from the Tigrayan side of a, a skirmish between the federal and Tigray forces is worrying. It's the first in, in a while. Um, but at the moment, the calculations seem to remain in in, in place that and the parties are going to pursue a negotiated solutions, but certainly the situation remains highly volatile. In November 2020, the government launched a military offensive in Tigray in response to attacks by the TPLF. An estimated 5.1 million people were displaced by the conflict in 2021. Ghent University in Belgium says up to half a million people have died because of the conflict, either in fighting or as a result of the humanitarian crisis it has caused. Henry Wilkins for VOA News. Addis Ababa. You're listening to Daybreak Africa on the Voice of America. I'm James Bhatti in Washington today. It's Friday, August 19th. Ahead on our program, Samsung O'Malley Sports. A Human Rights Watch official is welcoming the news that Felician Kabuka, one of the alleged perpetrators of the 1994 genocide against the Tutsis and moderate Hutu in Rwanda, will finally go on trial. Kabuga was arrested in 2020 in France and transferred to a UN tribunal in The Hague to face charges. The tribunal announced on Thursday that Kabuga's trial will begin on September 29. Louis March, Central Africa Director at Human Rights Watch, says Kabuga's case should send a message to perpetrators of crimes against humanity that they are not untouchable and that soon justice will catch up with them. He also hopes that the tribunal will establish how Kabuga was able to evade justice in France for so long. The fact that Felicien Kabuga will finally be put on trial for crimes he is alleged to have committed, crimes that include charges of international war crimes and crimes around genocide, um, the fact that he's going on trial is a very, very good thing. It's a major victory for victims and survivors of the genocide in Rwanda who've been waiting for years, more than two decades, to see this leading figure go before justice. But it also sends a really important message that those who are implicated in serious crimes, those who are implicated in atrocities, should learn a lesson from this, that they are not untouchable even though they may seem so, and that justice can catch up with them as well. Kabuka is an elderly person now. Can you review for our listeners again what he's accused of? Sure. So Felician Kabuga, as you said, uh, he is very elderly now, but he is still the man who back in 1994 uh, was very close with the then Rwandan president, Juvenal Habirimana. When Habirimana died in a plane crash in Kigali on April 6, 1994, that crash triggered ethnic killings across Rwanda on what had been an unprecedented scale. Felician Kabuga was close with Habirimana, but more importantly, he was one of the chief financiers. He was one of the chief backers of RTLM. So that's Radio Television Libre de Mille Collines. That was a radio station which was instrumental in broadcasting and inciting hatred. And equally just as important, it was communicating orders for implementing the killings, the ethnic killings of Tutsis after April 6th. Also, Felician Kabuga 
starting in 1993 and into early 1994, was importing thousands and thousands of machetes into Rwanda. And we at Human Rights Watch have documented this. And these machetes were used in the subsequent ethnic killings. And finally, Felician Kobuga, he was really instrumental in establishing and supporting the Interharmway Youth Militia that was working with Habirimana's ruling party at the time. This militia, the Interharmway, really became the force that carried out some of the most brutal ethnic killings across Rwanda. Suppose he's found guilty. What happens? As we already said, he's elderly. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the big questions around Felician Kabuka's case is that they should try to establish how he was able to evade justice for so many years. He's going to go through a, a trial at the basically what is the residual mechanism for the criminal tribunal for Rwanda. The, the you know evidence will be produced against him. Uh, he'll have a defense team, and if he is convicted, he will um, be sentenced. And if he is convicted, then I think it would be. Um, a safe assumption to assume he's going to spend the rest of his life in jail. Thank you very much. James, thanks so much. We'll be in touch. Louis March is the Central Africa Director at Human Rights Watch. He was speaking with us from Washington, D.C. Supporters of free speech in Nigeria have expressed concern after a federal court ruled on Wednesday that a singer appealed in his death sentence for blasphemy must have his case retried in a Sharia court. Yahya Aminu Sharif's lawyer argued that his case should be tried in a secular court and challenged the legality of the Islamic courts in Nigeria. But a three-judge panel ruled that Sharia courts have jurisdiction to try blasphemy cases, which critics say are an affront to free speech. Timothy Obiezu reports from Abuja, Nigeria. In a decision delivered on Zoom, the Kano State Appeals Court said in a two-to-one ruling that Sharia or Islamic law does not violate the national charter and that Islamic courts have jurisdiction to try blasphemy cases. The ruling dismissed a challenge filed by singer Yahya Aminu Sharif's lawyer Kola Alapini questioning the legality of the death sentence. One of the judges, Abubakar Muazul Lamido, said the challenge was not backed by law and that it was, quote, more out of sentiment. An Islamic court in Kano sentenced Sharif to death in August 2020 for allegedly circulating a song that blasphemed the Muslim prophet Muhammad on social media. In November, the Kano High Court overruled the sentence and ordered a retrial of the Sharia court, stating that Sharif did not have any legal representation during his trial. Activists are raising concerns about the appeals court ruling. Abuja-based human rights lawyer Martin Obono says it is a threat to free speech. One of the things that is causing religious crisis in Nigeria is the fact that people feel it's a criminal offense and they also feel like the law is slower to take its course. But if there is no provision at all, if we expunge that from our laws, people will begin to think and realize that Nigeria is a secular state and people have the freedom to express themselves. Kano State Attorney General and Justice Commissioner Musa Abdullahi Lawan praised the judgment, calling it a victory for Kano citizens. Sharif's lawyer has yet to respond to the court's decision, but he has been opposing Sharia, saying it contravenes the Nigerian constitution. Islamic scholar Fuad Adeyemi, who serves as executive director of the Al-Habibiyah Islamic Society, rejects the assertion. Sharia 
is to rearrange the life of a human being. But some of the time, it is misapplied by people who are not professional in the handling of it. It's strictly meant for the Muslims to regulate the life of the Muslim. It doesn't concern any non-Muslim. Sharia is more dominant across the 12 northern Nigerian states with a strong base in Kano. Critics say they worry the ruling could encourage overzealous believers to take mob actions against alleged blasphemy offenders. In May, a female college student was stoned to death and burned by an angry mob in northwest Sokoto State over accusations of blasphemy. Three weeks after that, a member of a vigilante group in Abuja was also killed over blasphemy allegations. Abuja-based lawyer Kayode Ajulo compared for cases. I know as a lawyer that Sharia law is part of the body of law of Nigeria. The killing of that innocent girl in Sakoto is a clear criminal case of lynching, of murder. It is different from Sharia because the issue of blasphemy is still subjected to court or tribunal interpretation. And you can see what the High Court has done to say there must be a retrial. Blasphemy is a sensitive topic in Nigeria, a country of more than 200 million people with nearly equal distribution of Christians and Muslims. The offense is punishable by a jail sentence under the country's secular law, but in the far north, the punishment is stricter, including a possible death sentence. Timothy Obiezu for VOA News, Abuja, Nigeria. A group of World Health Organization experts is recommending COVID-19 booster shots for people at the highest risk of severe illness and death. The Strategic Advisory Group of Experts on Immunization, or SAGE, which met in Extraordinary Session August 11, issued its updated guidance on Thursday. Lisa Schlein reports for VOA from Geneva. SAGE recommends continued use of the two-dose mRNA COVID-19 vaccines. Since the vaccine's efficacy wanes after several months, however, the group of experts advises a booster shot for everyone, beginning with those at highest risk. This is the first time SAGE has updated its guidance on the administration of a second booster shot. Its recommendations are based on increasing evidence on the benefits of a second booster dose of COVID-19 vaccines for select groups of people. SAGE Chairman Alejandro Cravioto says the group recommends a second booster shot for people older than 55 who are considered at highest risk of developing severe disease and in need of hospitalization. He says SAGE does not advocate a second booster for the general public for adults who are generally healthy and do not suffer from severe immunodeficiency. Lisa Schlein for VOA News, Geneva. It's time now for Daybreak Africa Sports and here is Samson Omale in Abuja, Nigeria. A very good Friday morning to you, Samson. Good morning to you too. James will begin the sports with news about ticket sales for the FIFA World Cup Qatar 2022. FIFA on Thursday said a total of 2.45 million tickets have been sold so far with more than 500,000 seats still available three months before the tournament starts in Qatar. FIFA said 520,000 tickets were bought in the first-come, first-served phase of sales that closed this week. Brazil's game against Zabia and Cameroon were 
among the most in demand. The top 10 places ranked by ticket sales to their residents include Qatar and neighboring countries, Saudi Arabia and United Arab Emirates, the United States, England, Mexico, France, Argentina, Brazil and Germany are also on the list released by FIFA. Back here on the African continent, the draw for the qualifiers of the CAF Under-23 Africa Cup of Nations Morocco 2023 took place on Thursday in Cairo and revealed some thrilling encounters. It will be Guinea-Bissau versus Niger. Tanzania will face South Sudan. Eswatini will confront Botswana while Mauritania will trade tackles with Togo. Other fixes revealed include Ethiopia versus DR Congo, Mozambique versus Mauritius, Burkina Faso versus Gambia, Libya versus Rwanda, Madagascar versus Seychelles and Angola versus Namibia. The first leg of the second round has been fixed for October 21st to the 23rd and the second for the 28th to the 30th of October 2022. CAF head of competition Khalid Nassar, who conducted the draw, said a total of 38 nations are involved in these qualifiers. Morocco automatically qualified as hosts. And this uh, competition, the qualifiers, will qualify, of course, to the final tournament in Morocco of the Under-23 Africa Cup of Nations. And the final tournament is qualifying, as you know, to the Olympic Games, which will be played in Paris 2024. Staying with football news, determined girls of Liberia put up a good display to hold defending champions A.S. Mandani 1-1 in their opening match of the Wafu A CAF Women's Champions League qualifier on Wednesday. A.S. Mandi, champions of the West African Football Union Zone A Women's Clubs Championship, must now win their match against U.S. Pasils Asanias on Friday to stand a chance of advancing to the knockout stages of the tournament. The Malian side will take on the reigning champions Senegal and that's it on Daybreak Africa Sports I am Samson Omale in Abuja Nigeria it's back to you James in Washington thank you Samson have a great weekend and that's it for this Friday August 19th edition of Daybreak Africa